Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. everybody. Welcome back to Straight A Nursing. And if you were listening last week, you know that we talked about some electrolytes, namely potassium and calcium. So today we're going to follow up with a couple more. Maybe we'll get sodium in there, but I think sodium is so special. We might give it its own podcast all by itself. So with that said, let's start with chloride. So the basic range for chloride, 95 to 110. If you didn't hear my little speech with the last episode, knowing the lab range is one thing, definitely not the most important thing. The most important thing with electrolytes is knowing what they do, what happens when they're too high, when they're too low, and what you, the amazing nurse, are going to do about it. So for your nursing school exams, you probably will have to know what the lab values are to a certain degree, but don't stress about it too much. Um, I noticed when I was in school that when there was a test and there was a lab value question, it was so obviously off base. Like if it was potassium, the question was about hypokalemia, the K would be like 2.3, which is so off base from normal that you got it. They're talking about hypokalemia. So anyway, with that said, chloride, 95 to 110-ish, that's going to vary based on where you work, what school you go to, and what your professor wants you to know. What is chloride? Well, guess what? It is the most abundant extracellular anion, and it combines with cations to form things like sodium chloride, calcium chloride, and potassium chloride. So all that college chemistry is coming back to you guys, right? Something interesting to know about chloride is that it will have an inverse relationship with bicarbonate. So if you've got some high chloride with low bicarb, what you've got is a hyperchloremic acidosis. And we see this relatively common in the ICU when patients have gotten a ton of sodium chloride solution. Sometimes they'll end up, you know, if they're sick with other things and they're not working optimally with a hypochloremic acidosis. That was just a little fun fact. I've got some more coming up for you in a bit. But first, let's talk about three important functions of chloride. Um, Its biggest job is to maintain osmotic pressure and fluid balance. It's also a key player in maintaining acid-base balance in the body. 
and it helps maintain electroneutrality through that negative charge. Charge. So how about some chloride fun facts for you guys? Did you know the body does not produce any chloride? All sources of chloride come from your diet or medications that you take. Biggest sources are going to be things like table salt, yum, one of my favorite food groups, meats, dairy products, and processed foods. And why do you think processed foods are in that list? Yeah, because of the massive amounts of salt in them. The chloride shift is a term that you might hear. This is a way to maintain pH in the body. Acidosis is going to cause bicarbonate to be released into the plasma in exchange for chloride. They're both negatively charged, so they can switch places with with each other, and the bicarbonate is going to act as a buffer for acidosis. So it does play that role in acid-base balance. Hydrochloric acid is derived from chloride, and it's essential for adequate digestion. And you'll know that because chloride and sodium often work together, when one is high, the other is often high. So we've talked a bit about some electrolytes that have inverse relationships like the calcium and the phos, and just now the chloride and the bicarb. But chloride and sodium are the same. They're BFFs. When one is high, the other is high. And I imagine when one is low, the other is low as well. Chloride is going to be absorbed by the intestines and excreted through the kidneys. And one of the tests, or the big test for cystic fibrosis, evaluates the level of chloride in sweat. So lots of fun facts about chloride. Who knew, right? So let's talk a little bit about when the chloride levels are too high. So that's hyper. Hyperchloremia is what we call it. So some of those signs are, well, first of all, on your lab draw, your chloride level is going to be above 110, critically high around the 115 range. So there's really not a lot of wiggle room there. Your patient will probably be pretty lethargic, have a headache. They may have fair amount of peripheral vasodilation. What do you think that is going to do to their blood pressure? So if they're vasodilating, they're going to be hypotensive. Very good. They'll also probably have some decreased cardiac output, maybe some tachycardia to try to compensate for that decreased cardiac output. How about some tachypnea to blow off CO2, often called Kuzmal's respirations, and some metabolic acidosis on their ABG. What are some of the common causes of hyperchloremia so that you can be clued in to watching out for it in particular patients especially? So that would be your patient that comes in very dehydrated. Lots of old folks come in so dehydrated. The thirst mechanism in the elderly does not work as well as it does when you're eight. So A lot of times elderly people don't drink enough water just because they simply don't feel thirsty. Um, Other reasons are because they don't want to have an accident. So kind of a few different contributing factors, and you'll see them come in dehydrated and then on top of that have a UTI. So 
that's just one example of people that come into hydrated. That's just what I thought of. But people come into hydrated for all kinds of reasons. Be on the lookout for hyperchloremia. Also, diabetic ketoacidosis. I think we mentioned in the last podcast, the one where we talked about potassium and calcium, I mentioned that DKA brings with it a very exciting electrolyte imbalance situation. So we're going to do a whole podcast on DKA. I'm writing myself a note right now so we make that happen. Um, If you've got an overdose of salicylates, so aspirins, methanol, or ethylene glycol, look for hyperchloremia. And also check out hyperchloremia if your patient's hypernatremic. Remember, BFFs, chloride and sodium, both are going to go up. Check that out. Also, if your patient's taking meds that contain chloride like ammonium chloride, and maybe they take a lot of it, check for elevated levels of chloride. If your patient's taking K-exalate on a kind of a regular basis or a lot of K-exalate, remember K-exalate's going to bind with potassium to lower elevated potassium levels. Well, it causes potassium to be excreted in the feces and chloride to be absorbed in the GI tract. So watch for elevated levels of chloride in those folks. So what are you going to do about elevated chloride levels? First things first, see if you can ID what's causing it and fix that. If your patient is dehydrated and they need fluids, give them fluids. You might want to give them fluids that don't contain chloride, though, so maybe some D5W or something like that. Determine if the patient is in a metabolic acidosis, so get a blood gas. See what that tells you. Calculate your anion gap. So that's going to be chloride plus bicarb. Add those together and then subtract sodium. And then there's your anion gap. That is important information that we'll talk loads about when we get into diabetic ketoacidosis in a future episode. You will also want to check out their sodium level. Remember, chloride and sodium, BFFs. So if they're hypochloremic, check their sodium level. Sodium can cause some pretty serious neuro problems, which is why I think we're going to do it all by itself. You can give sodium bicarb to improve their pH, improve their acid-base balance, and you want to monitor this patient for signs of hypotension and respiratory compromise. How about if they don't have enough chloride, so they're hypochloremic? This would be a chloride level less than 95-ish. Really bad news if it's around less than 80. So your patient with hypochloremia is probably going to be pretty confused and restless, could have some muscle cramps, some tetany, even convulsions. They will even have paresthesia of the arms and legs, hyperactive deep tendon reflexes, and possibly some hypoventilation. So pretty serious problems there. What can cause it? Well, one of the main things is excessive GI loss. So vomiting, suctioning, diarrhea, things where they are excreting out that chloride. You could also have it through dehydration. So remember, dehydration could also be a cause for hyperchloremia. Well, it can be a cause for hypochloremia if it's dehydration because you're losing sodium chloride with excessive sweating, or your patient has cystic fibrosis. Anything that's going to cause hyponatremia is going to cause a hypochloremia. 
Remember, sodium and chloride are BFFs. Uh, kind of the same with hyp uh, hypokalemia as well. If your patient's low in potassium, check their chloride levels as well. Um, they could be in a metabolic or respiratory acidosis due to DKA. Maybe they're in respiratory failure like they have emphysema. They may have um, pneumonia. Anything that can cause a metabolic or respiratory acidosis can cause their chloride levels to be low because the body is trying to balance out that acid by doing that whole bicarb switch thing we talked about before. Also, loop diuretics, osmotic diuretics, and thiazide diuretics can all cause chloride levels to drop. Low-sodium diet. If your patient is on a low-sodium diet and super strict about it, Maybe their hypochloremia is just because of that. Remember, sodium chloride is basically table salt. And then in fluid overload, like in CHF, they could be hypochloremic then as well. So what are you, the amazing nurse, going to do about your patient who is hypochloremic? Well, if you said ID the cause and treat it, you were absolutely right. You get an A today. You also want to try to limit the chloride losses. So if they're vomiting, try to control the vomiting. If they've got diarrhea, try to fix that. If they don't need to be on so much NG tube suctioning, maybe you can limit that and stop pulling out all the chloride. You can replace via IV infusion. You can also give as a PO. I don't see chloride replacement all that often, actually. We see hyperchloremia way more than hypo. Um, you want to watch your labs, so watch your chloride, the bicarb, sodium, and potassium. Trend all of those. Watch for acid-base balance, just like you did if they were too high. You're going to run that blood gas. Check it out. If you can DC diuretics right now, you might want to do that if that's possible. And monitor their neurostatus. Again, they might be confused and agitated. And if it's severe and you've got some pretty bad um, alkalosis, you can give ammonium chloride IV. So that is chloride. And now let's scooch on over to magnesium, probably my second favorite electrolyte after potassium. I feel like this is one that I look at a lot in the critical care setting. Magnesium is important mainly because it plays a role in cardiac cell function and depolarization. It's positively charged. You'll mostly find it in the intracellular fluid. So a normal mag is 1.8 to 3. Again, caveat about lab ranges. The hospital where I work replaces if it's below 1.9, I believe. Sometimes they'll replace if it's below 2.0. I think the highest mag I ever saw was around 7. So we'll talk about that when we get to hypermagnesemia. So we talked about in the potassium episode about how these two electrolytes kind of go up and down together. So if your K and mag are both low, and they won't always be, but if they are, if you can replace the magnesium first, do it. It's going to help the potassium stay up. If your potassium is so low that it's critical, I would run it first or with the magnesium with it. If you're unsure, ask somebody smarter than me, but that's what I typically do. I'll run them together or the K first if it's absolutely necessary, or I'll try to get that mag in there before I replace the K. 
three important functions of magnesium. It's Big job, again, is being a key player in cardiac physiology. It assists with vasodilation. It's going to help regulate blood pressure and cardiac function. And it's going to act as a cofactor in all kinds of enzymes throughout the body. So magnesium is super important, which is why we watch it so closely. So here are some magnesium fun facts. I know you can't wait for these. Magnesium is the second most abundant intracellular electrolyte in the body. Which one was the most abundant? Do you remember? That was potassium. Excellent. Some good sources of dietary magnesium are broccoli, almonds, tuna, beef, avocados, chicken and pork, whole grains, raisins, yum, milk, and doesn't sound great, but well water because it has a lot of minerals and whatnot in it. Magnesium plays a role in RNA and DNA synthesis. It's going to be excreted in the body by the kidneys and in the feces. And just like potassium and calcium, mag affects the action potential. So it's really key in neuromuscular impulses. You may have noticed that many laxatives contain magnesium as a big ingredient. Um, its effect on peristalsis is the stuff of legends. I gave mag citrate once. Once. I don't know that I will ever give it again. I think that I will honestly make up reasons why I couldn't give it. Like, couldn't find it. I spilled it accidentally all over the floor. Uh, the patient lost it. I don't know. It's just, it was a big mess, but... Yikes. Uh, anyway, individuals with GI disorders are going to be at a higher risk for low mag levels. People with Crohn's disease, celiac disease, small bowel resections, things like that. Magnesium plays a role in bone formation. I bet you didn't know that. And it is suggested that people who have migraines might have lower mag levels than average. So if you are a migraine sufferer, I feel for you, man. That's a miserable, miserable thing to have. Try taking a mag supplement. I don't know. See if it helps. Okay, so hypermagnesemia. Too much magnesium. So this is going to be a mag level above three-ish. And your signs and symptoms are sweating, flushing, facial flushing, hypotension, diminished deep tendon reflexes and weakness, nausea and vomiting, cardiac arrhythmias, bradycardias, and respiratory depression. So the patient that I had who was hypermagnesemic, is that a word, with a mag level of seven-ish, holy moly, she... What was her deal? She had preeclampsia, and they'll give mag infusions for preeclampsia. And I don't know what the deal was, but apparently she'd gotten a whole bunch of magnesium. So she came to us from an outside hospital. I don't know if they left the mag running while they transported, and it was really far away. I don't know. I don't remember. It was a super long time ago. But her neuro exam was super scary because she wasn't doing a thing. She could not move. Um, we had to just wait for that mag level to come down. And I'm sure we did something for it. 
um, I think we gave some calcium gluconate and, and whatnot, but, um, eventually she, you know, it leveled out and she was fine, but really scary. So there you go. Hypermagnesemia story. Um, what are some common causes? Well, besides pregnant women getting it for preeclampsia or to prevent uh, premature labor, you'll also see it in patients who have renal impairment, especially if they're taking antacids or laxatives that have mag in it. Um, that could be things like Maalox, Mylanta, Milk of Mag, the aforementioned mag citrate. Don't, don't ever give it. Um, and also patients undergoing treatment for leukemia. Also, if you suspect that your lab draw was hemolyzed, it's going to cause a high elevated mag. So if you get a mag level from the lab that makes no sense, redraw it, send it back down. Okay. What are you, the amazing super nurse, going to do about your poor patient who has hypermagnesemia? Well, the first thing you want to do is try to ID the cause and treat it. In the case of the woman with preeclampsia, the cause was she was on a mag drip forever. She needed to come off the mag drip and get her back down to a therapeutic magnesium level. You want to keep that patient on a cardiac monitor because remember, mag plays a big role in cardiac function. You're going to watch for prolonged QT intervals. You're going to watch for that QRS to be wide and tall T waves. Okay. You can give calcium gluconate via IV. If the kidneys work okay, you can give fluids and diuretics. I think we also did that for this gal, now that I'm thinking about it. Maybe like a Lasix drip or a Bumex drip or something like that. Um, you're going to watch for sedation and respiratory depression. That was the main reason she had to come to the ICU. I believe she had to be intubated for respiratory depression. Um, you can consider dialysis. Now, if the patient has renal failure, their kidneys aren't working, you got to get that mag out. They're going to be dialyzed. And you will obviously discontinue meds that have mag in it. So how about if their mag level is too low. That's going to be below 1.8 milligrams per deciliter. Some hospitals go by a milli equivalence per liter, and those numbers are going to be slightly different. I don't want to get bogged down in what the numbers are because, as I said, the most important thing is for you to know what to watch for and what to do. So the signs and symptoms of hypomagnesemia, you're going to see muscle twitching. So with the hyper, the muscles were bleh, right? Not doing anything. In hypo, they're twitchy and active. You've got twitches, spasms. You've got the cramping of the legs and feet. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night with a Charlie horse? Yeah. Guess what that is? You need some magnesium. So next time that happens, what has magnesium in it? What did we say? Go downstairs and eat some broccoli. Just like emergency broccoli yourself. Um, I think dark chocolate has magnesium in it too. So there you go. Keep a little dark chocolate by the bed. You may also see that your patient has nausea and vomiting. Maybe or maybe not have a paralytic ileus. Remember that muscle conduction is just going to be all out of whack. On your EKG, you might see a prolonged QT interval. Remember, MAG has a lot to do with the cardiac cycle. You'll probably see a wide QRS, some ST depression, and maybe even T-wave inversion. So that'd be a really interesting EKG to see, actually. Your patient's probably going to be restless, disoriented, pretty likely confused, and you might even see nystagmus. So what could be some common causes of hypomagnesemia? Well, one of the things would be excessive GI drainage. That's uh, diarrhea is a common one or a load of NG tube suctioning. 
If your patient is going through alcohol withdrawal, there's lots of electrolyte shifts with that as the glucose enters the cell and things get all wacky, so they may have low mag levels. Anyone going through alcohol withdrawal is going to get a multivitamin. Um, if they're not able to take anything PO because they're so out of it, they get what is called a banana bag, and it is a yellow IV bag. Well, the bag is clear, but the stuff in it is yellow, full of vitamins, and we call it a banana bag, and it has thiamine in it, and thiamine is not compatible with anything on the planet except thiamine, apparently. So if you've got a patient who is going through alcohol withdrawal and is on a banana bag, you're going to need a dedicated line, just FYI. Other common causes for hypomagnesemia, malnourishment or malabsorption, the gut's not working correctly. You could have um, osmotic diuresis causing it when the patient has hyperglycemia. And when we talk about DKA and HHS, we will, you know what? I think we have. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sorry to interrupt myself, but I'm going to check. I think we have. Go back and look. I believe we have a podcast called When Sugar Attacks or something really funny like that. Go back and check and listen to it. So we talk a lot about hyperglycemia and osmotic diuresis. So hypomagnesemia right there. Um, nephrotoxic drugs and renal tubular disease could be a cause for low mag levels. And then some drugs can cause it like corticosteroids, insulin, calcium gluconate, aminoglycoside, antibiotics, and again, diuretics. And then hypothyroidism as well. So you're an amazing nurse, your patient's hypomagnesemic, what are you going to do? You get a prize if you said identify the course and treat. So excellent. You can also replace mag via IV. Usually it's two grams over two hours. So you got to run it. It's usually what we run is a two gram bag and 50 mils. So it's 25 mils an hour. It takes forever. You can also replace PO if asymptomatic or not severe. For the most part, we replace our mag IV. I don't know if other places replace it PO. You also want to check your potassium levels calcium levels. Um, check for that positive chopsticks or trousseau sign because calcium is likely to be low as well. Monitor the EKG. Watch that heart for arrhythmias. You might see um, PVCs is something. I should have mentioned that before, but PVCs is something that I tend to see um, on the EKG when the patient's mag level is low. You could stop the diuretics if possible. And if they are on digitalis, you need to watch for signs of digitalis toxicity when mag is low, okay? So that is chloride and magnesium. And I believe we'll do sodium all by its lonesome so that I can talk to you guys about the treatment for hyponatremia and hypernatremia because it's a little more involved than just giving them a PO calcium replacement or whatever. So I hope that helped you a lot. And I just want to say hey to Mickey, who sent the nicest note, you guys, and she said I could share it with you. And I'm sharing it with you because it totally made my day, maybe my, my week, 
probably the month, actually, to be to be to be honest. So here's what Mickey says. She says, Nurse Mo, thank you. And then she has like 50 exclamation points. I cannot express enough how grateful I am to have found your page on Facebook website and bought your book. I think I am the most prepared for nursing school in my class, which only started a few days ago, but I am loving every minute. I have tried to help as many fellow nursing students as I can and have recommended your book and website. Thank you again for writing your book and all of your tips and tricks. They are the best. Signed, Future Nurse Mickey. Isn't that so sweet? So what I love about this isn't so much that Mickey's saying thank you to me and and being super sweet, but that she is going out of her way to help as many fellow nursing students as she can. And I just want to say, be like Mickey. What an awesome person. So guys, have a great day. I hope this was helpful. Look forward to the sodium podcast. I don't think it will be next because I have a topic I really want to get out to you kind of towards the first of the semester. I realize not everybody's on the same system, but for a lot of you, you're at the beginning of the semester. And what we'll be talking about is what you really need to focus on in nursing school, because it's overwhelming as heck and kind of getting your brain wrapped around what you really need to focus on is so helpful. So I want to talk about that and I want to do a quick sepsis review because if you're going into your advanced med surge clinicals, that's going to be super helpful. So I'll probably do the focus one, the sepsis one, and then we'll swoop back and do sodium. Okay. Sound good. Thanks so much, everyone. You have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.